Have you ever wondered if it's worth it to be a Christian? Have you ever thought to yourself, is it worth all the trouble following Jesus? You thought when you first became a Christian, when you first dedicated and gave your life to God, that now that you were a child of God and you were going to receive his love and his care, that things would be easier. But then things didn't turn out to be easier. In fact, things have turned out to be more difficult. Life's been more of a struggle. There's been more trials. There's been more suffering. There's been more tribulation. And to make matters worse, you look around you and you look at those people who aren't following Jesus and they seem to be prospering. They seem to be successful. Their life seems to be easy. And you wonder to yourself, is it all worth it? Now, if we're honest with each other, most of us have been there. And even this morning, I know that there's some of you here this morning that are right there, right now, wondering if it's worth it to follow Jesus. Because you look around you and you see that those who aren't have it pretty good. Many Christians have this problem. Well, this is the problem that we're going to address this morning. This is the problem that Psalm 73 addresses. This morning, we're going to continue our undivided series by looking at Psalm 73. It's found on pages 414 and 415 in the Bibles that the church provides. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. And you'll see in the superscription in the text that at the top it says it's a psalm of Asaph. This means that Asaph wrote this psalm. And we're going to see in Psalm 73 that we're not alone in our struggle. Asaph is a contemporary of David. He's a friend of David. And in fact, he's the person that David appoints to be the chief Levite. David just isn't, excuse me, Asaph just isn't any ordinary person. He's just not a regular guy in Israel. He's the worship leader of all of Israel. He's spiritually mature. He's godly. He is the person that is in charge and in control of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the place where the people of Israel go to meet God and to worship him. It's the precursor to the temple that Solomon's going to build in just a few years. But this man, Asaph, Asaph is the worship leader of all of Israel. And here in Psalm 73, Asaph bears his heart. He writes a very personal psalm, one filled with gut-wrenching honesty. It's a public confession of a person who almost lost his faith. It addresses the question that most of us have asked one time in our life or another. It addresses the question that some of you may be asking this morning. If, in fact, the Christian life promises blessing, why is it that so many of us struggle with health, finances, relationships, our jobs, and it seems like the wicked and the ungodly around us are prospering and successful. Let's see what Asaph says in 
see what God has for us this morning. Asaph begins Psalm 71 with a summary. He begins with a summary of what he's been taught in Scripture. He begins with his theology, if you will. Look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So even though in the coming verses he's going to share his struggle, Asaph starts out with what he knows in his mind. He starts out with God is good. But this doesn't mean that Asaph did not doubt. He states in verse 1 that God is good, but he goes on to share the struggle of his heart. He's going to get personal. He's going to bear his soul. Look what he writes in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is brutally honest about what he sees. He's brutally honest about his perspective. He's bothered by the apparent contradiction between what he had been taught in Scripture, between his theology that God is good and with what he's experiencing in his life. He's envious of the arrogant. He's disturbed by the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph here could not believe that the wicked are prospering when he, the person who is following God, the person who is trying to maintain purity, is struggling so greatly. And he's brought here to the point of breaking. He says that he's lost his foothold. He's slipping fast. He's almost given up on God. He's close to tossing his faith. Why? Because of what he saw. He was struggling. He saw other godly people around him struggling. And he sees the wicked and the ungodly succeeding. Why was he so envious? What is it that Asaph saw? Look at what he writes. It's as if he's saying, just look at these people. Just look what they're like. Look at verses 4 and 5. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Asaph looks at the wicked, the ungodly, and sees people who seem to have no trouble in life whatsoever. They're healthy. They don't ever seem to get sick. If they do get sick, they get the best medical attention possible. If they need medications, they can afford them. They have all the food they could ever want. They go to all the best restaurants. They don't have to shop at Aldi. They can shop at D&W. They, they have everything. I want to make sure you're awake. They had everything. They had everything going for them. This is what Asaph sees. These are people that have it made. But it doesn't end there. Look, at he gives us more detail in the next few verses. Verses 6 through 9. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. From, the, from Asaph's perspective, these people, they seem to get away with murder. Not only do they not have any struggles, they walk around with a swagger that says, look at me. Speaking of confident, they do what they want, when they want it. They have insatiable appetites. They speak their mind, and if necessary, they use intimidation and violence to get what they want. 
This is what Asaph sees in the wicked and the ungodly. And we see people like this as well, don't we? We see people like this in our lives. Now, I have to, I'm going to admit a problem that I have. I am a, uh, I'm a channel surfer. So when I watch TV, I, I'm flipping through channels. So you never want to watch TV. Jim, Jim's really good. Jim doesn't have a TV. I do have a TV. And I'm always going through channels. Any of you channel surfers? Come on, fess up. Okay, good. I feel better. I'm at home now. So I'm a channel surfer. Have you ever stopped on the Bravo Network? Anybody ever stopped on? Well, I don't recommend it. But if you ever stopped on the Bravo Network, there's a series of shows on the Bravo Network. It's the Housewives series. The Housewives of Orange County, the Housewives of Beverly Hills, the Housewives of Atlanta, the Housewives of New York, the Housewives of New Jersey. And you watch this show is about women and their husbands and or their men. And these women live this life that apparently is full of prosperity, success, and ease. But as you watch the show and you compare it to these verses, you see that these women fit this description to a T. Proud, arrogant, conceitful, envious plots, malicious, insatiable appetites. And you look at them and they say, you say to yourself, they're not very nice people. But their life seemed to be going fairly well. They seemed to be prospering. They seem to have fairly reasonable, easy lives. Or how about legislators, courts, and even presidents who declare that wrong is right and right is wrong? They seem to be fairly successful, prosperous. Their lives seem to be going relatively well. And on top of all of that, look what Asaph, look what he writes next in verses 10 and 11. To make matters worse, everyone loves these type of people. Not only are they healthy, wealthy, and in control, people want to follow them. Look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is, says that people turn to them. They want to be like them. And because the wicked are treated so well, they say, how can God know? This is a statement of mockery towards God, implying that there can't be any divine judgment. They look and say, how good life is to us. If there is a God, he, doesn't, he obviously doesn't care how we live. Their behavior encourages others to behave just like them. Talk about wicked. Talk about negative examples. So with the cry of protest, Asaph concludes with a summary description in verse 12 of what he sees. Look what he writes. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. This is a cry of protest and not a shrug of resignation because Asaph knows in his heart that something is not right. He recognizes what he sees, but he's conflicted because he knows that the wicked should get what they deserve, that the wicked should come to the end that they are deserving of. But when he looks around, he sees that the wicked, the ungodly, appear to be winning the game of life. Now listen, if you don't think this is serious yet, keep reading. Asaph is 
in a downward spiral. He seems ready to throw in the towel, ready to give up. Listen to the defeat in his words. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. In essence, Asaph asks, what's the point? What's the point of being godly? Or as we might put it, what's the advantage of being a Christian if those of us around us who aren't Christians have it so good, if they have it so easy? Asaph feels his foot slipping. His world is coming crashing down around him. He looks around and sees the wicked, prospering, and successful. And he's struggling. He's wondering where his purity has gotten him, where his devotion to God has led him. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered where your devotion to God has gotten you? Have you ever wondered where your purity has led you? Maybe you're the business person that's here this morning and year after year you've conducted your business in a godly and honest way. But you can never seem to get over the hump. And right in the suite next to you is the shadiest business person you know. Always manipulating, always lying, always cheating. And every year, his business grows and grows and grows. And when people look at him and when people talk about him, they say, look at that successful businessman. Or maybe you've faithfully followed Jesus Christ for years. And a number of years ago, your husband left you. And since he left you, your life hasn't been so easy. But you look at his life. And he has apparent success and prosperity and an easy life. Or maybe you're a student here this morning and you just got your grades back and you look, go right away to your AP English class and in that AP English class you go to the exam column and you look and, and you got a B minus. And you know the girl sitting next to you got an A and you know she cheated. And now your dream college is just that. It's a dream but she is in. Have you ever wondered where your godliness has got you? Have you ever wondered what has been the benefit of your purity? This is what Asaph is struggling with. He looks around. He's the one who has kept God's laws. He's the one who has kept God's commands, but he looks around at the ungodly, at the wicked, those who deny God, and they're the ones who are prospering, and he's struggling. And we see the same thing. We look around and we say, how can somebody who is so bad have it so good? This is where Asaph is at. And look where it leads him. Verse 16. 
when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. But then, something happens. Something happens to change Asaph's perspective. As he's spiraling downward, as he feels like he cannot go on, when his foot is about ready to completely slide off the rock, when the oppression is at its greatest, something happens that changes Asaph's perspective completely. Something happens to open up Asaph's eyes so he can truly see reality. It's like walking into a dark room and finally finding the light switch and flipping it on and reality comes into full view and he can now see. Look at what happens in verse 17. Till or until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. When Asaph enters the sanctuary of God, it all becomes clear. This is the hinge verse of the entire psalm. If there is a most important verse in this psalm, this is it. When I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. When Asaph enters the sanctuary of God, his vision is adjusted. He can now see clearly. His perspective has changed. The New English Bible translates, then I understood here, as then I saw clearly. The message paraphrases it and says, then I saw the whole picture. What happened in the sanctuary? What is it that happened in the sanctuary that changed Asaph's perspective? What was it that helped him to understand? What was it that helped him to see clearly? Asaph encountered God in the sanctuary. And when God met Asaph in the sanctuary, Asaph came to the point where he could see clearly. Now I have to ask you this, what happens in the sanctuary? How is it that Asaph encounters God? What does Asaph do when he enters the sanctuary? When Asaph enters the sanctuary, he worships. And in his worships, worship, he gets down on his knees and he declares that God is God. When Asaph worships God, God becomes the center of his vision. God becomes his complete focus. And Asaph comes to the point where he recognizes who God is and his perspective completely changes. So all that is around him does not compare to the God that he comes to worship. Asaph's perspective changes. He comes to see clearly when he encounters God in the sanctuary through his worship. It's the worship of God that allows Asaph 
to see. But what is it that Asaph comes to see? What is it that you and I are able to see when we come into the sanctuary and worship? We come into this sanctuary with our problems, with our struggles, with our loneliness, with our failures, with our hurts, with our trials, with our sufferings. We come in here to worship God. What is it that our worship of God allows us to see? Asaph tells us there are three things that he tells us that he comes to understand, that he comes to see. The first thing that Asaph sees is the fate of the wicked. In Psalm 73, it's interesting, Asaph chooses to call God the word El. It's not the covenant name for God. It's not the intimate name for God. Rather, it is the God of transcendence. It's the God of eternal being. It's the God of unlimited power. This is how Asaph refers to the God who he meets in the sanctuary. And when he enters the sanctuary this time, maybe for the first time, he sees the God of transcendence. He sees the God who is holy. And when he sees this awesome, inspiring, holy God, it completely changes his perspective. And he realizes that he's been viewing the wicked and the ungodly with a misperception. He hasn't actually seen them as they are. And he comes to see the reality that they are in tremendous bondage and that their future is incredibly unstable. Look at verse 17 again through verse 20. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Now Asaph finally sees reality. Remember earlier in verse 3, he said he saw and he envied. But what he saw and envied in verse 3 has now been shown to be an illusion. It's the same in our lives. When we look at the wicked and the ungodly and we see what we seem to see in prosperity and their success, we have to come to the point where we recognize that it's just an illusion. Their real fate, their end, is terrible. We should be agonizingly concerned with their fate not jealous over what they have because all that they have is here in the material. It's all just a fantasy. It's all truly an illusion and it has no lasting value. So the first thing that Asaph comes to see is the fate of the wicked. The second thing he comes to is a new self-awareness. Seeing the fate of the wicked then moves Asaph to understand himself better. And he comes to a place of repentance for his doubt, for his envy, for his self-pity. Look at what he writes in verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. 
Asaph continues to be open and honest. He now sees his own guilt before the Lord. Earlier in verse 2, he was concerned about personal danger. He was concerned about his feet slipping. Later in verse 15, he's concerned about speaking against the community and bringing them to harm. But now, it's just God and Asaph, and he confesses his sin to the Lord. This is the same spirit that we saw in David when David was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He goes before the Lord and repents. He confesses of his wrongdoing. He demonstrates an undivided heart before God. And this is exactly what Asaph does. He comes to this point and he recognizes that his thoughts, that what he's been thinking about the wicked and the ungodly, they're not only an illusion, but his envy and his doubt and his self-pity has been sinful. So he comes before the Lord in understanding and in repentance and confesses this sin to the Lord. And then, the minute he comes to this low place, the minute he comes to this low place before God, there's an instant reassurance. He realizes that God still loves him, that God is still with him, that God has not abandoned him. All the marvel of the grace of God is poured into the first word in verse 23. Look at that word. It's a small word with huge meaning. Yet, suddenly there comes to his understanding the fact that no matter what he's done, even in spite of what he's done, when he confesses his sin before the Lord, the Lord is still there. The Lord still loves him. Look what he writes. He cries out this in praise. Look at what. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When Asaph enters the sanctuary, he recognizes that God has been with him all along and that God will continue to be with him. Look what he writes. He sees that God will hold him, that God guides him, that God strengthens him. Asaph comes to understand, he comes to see that the wicked people may have everything material in this life. It may appear that they are prospering, but when he comes to the sanctuary, he worships, he comes to understand that what he has is much more valuable than anything they have because he has God. And he's not just talking about God in eternity or God in heaven. He's talking about the fact that he recognizes, that he sees, that he has God now and that it is more valuable, it has more worth, it is more precious than any material thing that anyone else could ever have. He has God. And it's the same for you and for me. We look around us all too often and we look at the ungodly, we look at the wicked and we think to ourselves, how can they be so successful? How can they prosper? How can life be so easy for them when I'm the one who's trying to be godly? 
we think that way because we have the wrong perspective. When Asaph enters the sanctuary, when Asaph encounters God through his worship, he gains the right perspective. He has God. And for each one of us, no matter what you are going through, no matter what your struggle is, no matter what your trial is, no matter what your pain is here this morning, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how deep the hurt is, what I want to tell you this morning is it doesn't compare to the fact that you have God. The God of the universe has chosen you and he holds you, he guides you, and he strengthens you. And the fact that you have God is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. Now, more than me telling you that this morning, we are going to ask God to tell us that. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to reorient our thinking. We are going to worship together and we are going to together encounter God and we are going to put him at the center of our focus to reorient our thinking, to help us understand, to help us know, to help us see that we have God. Let's pray and ask him to do just that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have come here this morning to experience you. We have come here this morning to hear from you. We have come here this morning to understand. We have come here this morning to see. So now, Heavenly Father, my brothers and my sisters and me, we all pray together in unison for you to meet us. Lord, we pray for your presence to be so real that it will reorient our thinking, that you will become the center of our vision and everything else will fade out of focus. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning we will see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.